You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. We preserve the history and sport of hunting through curious conversation and action-packed hunts, as well as offering you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. Thank you, everybody, for coming back, listening, watching, subscribing to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. This is episode number 85, and today we're joined by Dallas Barber. He's the big game biologist at the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. Thanks for jumping on with us, Dallas. Hey, you're welcome, Christian. How are you today? Not too bad. Hanging in there. You were telling us on the before we got on the episode, you had to drive over to the, the highest hill to get cell service to do this. So that's how committed you are. Yeah, I mean we've uh, we've got a, a nice metal shop, but with the metal shop comes poor cell service. So, sitting in uh, in my lovely uh, state issued vehicle here for you guys today, uh, hoping to answer all the questions you got, man. That's awesome. Um, well, cool. I think before I I'd sent you a kind of a list of some topics we wanted to discuss, and I think one of the big one is kind of just get the the state of the union on big game in in Oklahoma. I mean. I grew up in Oklahoma, just one of the most diverse states as far as big game, like able yeah. to kill five big game animals in the state. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that that a lot of people really just kind of overlook. Um, when you think of Oklahoma, um, elk and mule deer and pronghorn are, are not something that come to mind or even black bear for that matter. So um, we've got it all. I mean, if you're if you're an outdoorsman or woman and, and are interested in, you know, chasing big game around uh if there's a will there's a way here in the sooner state yeah that's for sure we figured out that there was a pronghorn in the panhandle a few years ago when he saw a facebook yeah. post of a guy doing some guided hunts out there i was like what and there was a yeah. good amount of them too yeah so i mean our our pronghorn really we are kind of on the the eastern fringe of their habitat um really kind of the the last two counties in our panhandle so texas and cimarron counties are, are where those are located and um really the only area that it's even legal to hunt them are going to be west of highway 136 there uh in guyman so pretty limited uh limited area for hunting but um some great opportunity uh can can kind of present itself there um population numbers uh that you know that panhandle is only 32 miles tall so uh, we share a lot of pronghorn with New Mexico and Texas and Kansas and Colorado, so they can cover some ground. But you know, anywhere between uh, you know fifteen hundred to three thousand antelope in in the Panhandle at any given time. A lot of that really depends on habitat conditions. Yeah, we hunted them out near uh, Boise City. It seems like it's like the only thing out there when you're going through the highway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you're a long way from anything if you're if you're in Boise City. Uh, they got a loves. And dairy queen a, and they got a dairy queen so and a dollar general so that's the you know the three necessities for for life on earth there i think we hunted them and uh we went through the the dairy queen i think it was 2018 we came back two years later we saw the same guy in the drive-thru at the dairy queen i was like man not not much changes out here in two years <laughs> yeah it's definitely a remote part of the state but um it leads to to good pronghorn habitat um, so limited hunting on the pronghorn just because of where they where they end up living in that part of the state. Yeah, um, it's a lot of of really large land holdings. So you know, just a handful of people owning a whole bunch of ground. So not a whole lot of uh, of you know knock and talk kind of permission opportunity out there. Um, and then you know, it's really the only over the counter opportunity is going to be with a bow and arrow. 
Um, if you're hunting them with a gun, it is either through our controlled hunt draws or uh, through a, a landowner tag. So again, really limited opportunity just because it's a limited population. Is the what's the odds on on the rifle tag? Is that a once in a lifetime draw? It one time, you're done sort of yep, tag. It, it's a it's a our our part. You know the the controlled hunt that you can put in for is is a once in a lifetime tag. So I saw this last. I think it was last week. You were down in southeast Oklahoma wrangling up some bears. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know I am not involved in the bear program uh in any way shape or form so um as the big game biologist i handle all of our deer elk and antelope uh but every once in a while uh i will get to kind of branch out and and kind of see what the rest of the department is doing and i got an opportunity to actually go do some of the bear den research uh that that we're involved with uh down in the southeastern part of the state so we went and uh had a gps collared bear that that had denned up there uh, in mccurtain county and she needed some uh adjustments on her gps collar so you know as that animal is growing uh that collar does not care that that animal is growing and doesn't have the ca real capability to to stretch or, or get a whole lot bigger there's a little bit of play in there to allow to, for us to understand that hey this needs to happen so we got to get in there and and get that bear uh, taken care of so she can continue to live happy and healthy so we do a lot of public land hunting down in southeast mm -hmm. oklahoma and what can you tell us about the kind of the state of black bear in the southeast portion of Oklahoma because we've noticed more and more black bear on trail camera and actually a lot bigger ones we saw this year on trail cam as well. They are ever expanding. Um, and again, I mean, this isn't exactly my area of expertise to cover, um, but I will tell you what I know. Um, you know, anytime that we make any sort of regulation change, there's, there's science that's backing that. So um, recently here, we have expanded that bear hunting zone to pretty much the whole southeast corner of, of the state. Um, and, and don't quote me on the exact zones, but I want to say it's pretty much anything east of 35 and, and south of 40 pretty much uh, is open to bear hunting. So what used to be a, a very small hunting area is expanding along with that population. So um, yeah, it, it's definitely something that, that's kind of exciting, especially if you've got access to ground there in, in the southeast part of the state. Uh, bears always on the table over there. Well, we've noticed an increased participation in people hunting bear on public land. Like as before, we used to just whitetail hunt in the southeast, and we're now seeing people driving by. We're like, hey, you guys seen any whitetail? And they're like, oh, no, we're bear hunting on public ground. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what? Yep. I mean, it, it's something that, that's really picking up some steam. So uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of what, what harvest numbers are going to look like over the next couple of years with, with an increase in participation. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I read on the on the regulations, there's almost, there's a period of time you have to buy your tag before the season starts. So they don't start yeah. selling them as the season's going. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense because we've always kind of hoped and prayed we'd saw one on public land. And I'm like, Hey, yeah. you got to buy your tag before it's commit that hundred bucks before you see one. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that is, is to kind of prevent people from being shady about stuff, uh, shooting bears uh, without having a permit and then buying one after the fact. So um, just something to try to kind of keep people honest and to really get an idea of what hunting pressure is going to look like for that upcoming season. Yeah. I know you say that bear isn't your area of expertise, but I'm wondering what people can do on public land to, to target more bear, because I know they're big and most people that on private are, are heavy into baiting. Yeah. How, how can you locate and hunt them on, on public? They are from, you know, a very difficult animal to uh, to do any sort of real patterning on, um, especially in the fall. Um, you know, 
I guess, you know, if, if you're really focusing public land on, on killing a black bear here in Oklahoma, um, those acorns are king. Um, and, and you'll even hear, uh, you know, the, the public or the private land folks that are able to bait, um, you know, they stop seeing bears the second that acorns drop. Um, so if you can really kind of focus on some of those oak flats that you'll find um, in the southeast part of the state, a lot of those are, are big oak benches uh, that are on the sides of, of the mountains there, you will should be in the bears, man. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people that hunt bear in Arkansas talk all about the acorns. Like, mm-hmm. hey, if you're planning it's on coming out and there's acorns on the ground. It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, that's for it's sure. A blessing and a curse all at the same time. Well, another thing we have is a, a pretty, well, at least from my perspective, a pretty healthy amount of elk in not only the southwest portion of the state, which is where people probably traditionally think of them, but also the southeast. And it seems ever expanding into the I guess it'd be west central west part of the state as well. What can you tell me about the kind of the state of the elk herd besides uh, the southwest portion of the state? Yeah, and I mean, so so the heart of that elk herd is going to be, you know, the the special southwest zone, um, which is made up of, of Kiowa, Comanche, and Caddo counties. And that's right there in the heart of, of the Wichita Mountains area. That's kind of where the original elk hunts went on in our state. Um, but not including those, um, the elk herd is also expanding. Um, it's getting to the point where I'm really not all that surprised when somebody sends me a, an email with a picture of, hey, I have an elk and I'm in Logan County, or hey, I have an elk and, and I'm you know just anywhere really these days. Um, obviously, they, they tend to stick to kind of some of the larger river systems in the state. Uh, those tend to be more of the, the long distance travel corridors. So the Arkansas River, Cimarron River, things like those. Um, the Guyman area is is really starting to see a growth in their elk herd as well. So, um, I mean, it's it's a lot like the bears. I mean, they're they're expanding and kind of filling the niches and in, in where they can be met as far as their habitat needs. So, it's exciting times. I know that you said most of the legislation within the state is backed by data, and that's obviously why a lot of people like you exist. We have biologists to tell us what herds are at, sustainability, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. Where do we have to to be in terms of uh, elk numbers to have controlled hunts for them? Because I've seen in the southeast region, some of those controlled hunts have actually gone away that used to exist. Yes. Um, So as far as as public land elk hunting, um, it's not legal here in Oklahoma uh, solely because there's actually a a couple different reasons. Um, The biggest one being population numbers. I mean, like you said, there are some set numbers that you have to have. Um, to feel comfortable with hunting that population and not making a a detrimental impact. Um, On most of those areas, we don't have near that number. Um, Another issue you have is, you know, when you think about public land elk hunting, you're thinking about Colorado, you're thinking about Utah, you're thinking about Montana, places where you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres for people to really spread out where at Cookson, for example, where we still have a, a controlled elk hunt, uh, you're talking about just a couple thousand acres there. So, if you if you think that you know it, you'll you'll understand this correlation pretty well. You know, if you think of uh, you know like opening day of rifle season at uh, Pack Saddle WMA, if you think that's bad for deer, I mean, open it up for elk on a place that's got one elk on it and and see yeah. what it looks like. It'll be a pumpkin patch out there. Yeah, that's so for then, sure. There are some biological reasons to it, but there are also social reasons that you've got to think about as far. I mean, hunter safety would be a huge issue in a situation like that. 
What about um, for draw hunts where there might be one bull or two bulls that need to be taken? Why why have some of those kind of gone away? Is it population issues? I mean, you're talking like Spavanol has gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no more elk at Spavanol. Uh, unless it's just a, a one or two or three that are kind of bouncing through back and forth, there's just not a herd that, that has established itself well in that part of the state. Another interesting one for me, I think it's similar to kind of the pronghorn discussion, is what's the what's the state of, of mule deer in, more specifically, the panhandle? Yeah. Um, so, again, it... it it is a lot like the pronghorn. Um, we are right on that eastern fringe of, of habitat, uh, you know, for them. So um, they really kind of are in a gradient from west to east. So the farther west you are in the state, the better chance you have of seeing a mule deer. Uh, really, harvest only occurs in about 13 to 15 counties, um, kind of in the western third of the state there. Um, but really, Access is, is again, probably your, your biggest hurdle there. Um, there are a handful of WMAs where you've got the opportunity to harvest mule deer, but again, it's very limited. Um, all of those places, to my knowledge, are a, a controlled hunt for rifle, but archery, archery opportunities exist on them. So um, we carry between 4,500 and 5,500 mule deer from our, our best uh, estimates there. Um, but we do have uh, possibly some mule deer research coming down the pipeline. So it'll be uh, interesting to see kind of what we can figure out a little bit more about about our mule deer and, and mule deer harvest. I mean, when you look at our, our mule deer harvest graphs, um, man, we've killed between 200 and 250 mule deer for the last 25 years. So harvest has remained a uh, pretty constant, um, pretty consistent, but they have really kind of, those big droughts that we had back in, you know, 13, 14, 15, um, really put a dent in the population. Um, so they're kind of starting to get back to where they were. We're starting to see mule deer again in areas where we hadn't seen them for quite a while. So that is, is some good news to hear, but, uh, they're still just a, a very fringe habitat, um, kind of population where they're very pocketed so if you've got an area where they're in uh good for you if you don't i wouldn't hold your breath that that they're just going to come stumbling in because you're probably a long ways from one yeah this one's interesting to me because i feel like this is a popular forum topic is like mule deer and the panhandle of oklahoma and i just see people like they exist like i want to go hunt them i want to go try them with my bow and i'm like i'm sure they do exist it seems pretty tough um, though you you've got to really want to kill one i I can tell you that um none of the areas where they are living are easy to access um we're talking i'm trying to i'm trying to tiptoe around this without just dumping into everybody's laps where on our wmas uh, these mule deer are located um you know you've got really big areas with uh, really thick sand hills that make for really, really tough hiking. Uh, you've also got areas that are really jip canyon, I mean, just nasty, choked out with, with uh, you know, mesquite and uh, and some juniper. So, I mean, you're, you, like I said, you, you've got to want to, to get out there and, and harvest one to, to be successful. But the opportunity is there. I, I know a handful of people that, that have been successful in doing it. So, you can't kill them from the couch. Have you ever seen any uh, any mixes between maybe a whitetail and a mule deer? Any hybrids? Or is there any way to spot that or tell? So the only true 
way to tell is actually to measure a gland on the back leg of a deer to tell if it is a whitetail or a mule deer or a hybrid. Um, so just looking at it through a, a pair of binoculars uh, is not really uh, a reliable way to tell. But, you know, once you have animal in hand, if you've got a question about it, um, you can always send us a picture and I will be able to, to kind of decipher what we got going on there. So that gland uh, on a mule deer is going to be a lot longer, whereas on a whitetail, it's just a little bitty spot. So um, I think finally we talked through elk, antelope, talked about bear, all that good stuff. I think one that uh, uh, another interesting one, I think the last big game animal will be the, the whitetail. I mean. I know Oklahoma for a long period of time has been considered a, a sleeper state. I don't consider it that any longer for mature deer. What's your thoughts word, on our whitetail herd? The word is out. Um, yeah, it is. The word is out. Um, you know, we, we have been really blessed over the last probably six years or so uh, for having really good um, spring and summertime conditions. Um, we've had, for the most part across the state, pretty ample rainfall, um, which makes for great fawning. Uh, it makes for really good antler development. And I think a lot of that has been seen in some of the quality of, of deer that we're harvesting here over the last handful of years. Um, another thing is that hunter mindset has really changed. Um, a lot of people are passing deer that in the past they would have harvested without a doubt in their mind. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just what's happened within technology lately. Um, trail cams are as cheap as they've ever been and they're as good as they've ever been. And it's really hard for a hunter who gets one picture of a really good deer um, to, to not wait for that deer all season long. So I've always said, man, trail cams have saved a lot of two and a half and three and a half year old bucks lives. Uh, just from that sole fact of, man, I have one picture of a really good deer and I know he's in here. It might not be every day, but I've seen him once. And boy, that gives a lot of people some hope to, to wait and try to harvest a mature deer. How much do you attribute um, the work of someone like the QDMA or now the National Deer Association to kind of changing hunter mindset? I feel like it's interesting because we used to be a three buck state now we're a two buck state. Everyone wants to talk about one buck, but I feel like if through stewardship, the quality of the whitetail herd in Oklahoma has seems to get the, they're getting more mature and people are making better decisions around harvesting deer. Yeah. I mean, QD, QD May, now the NDA has been a, a huge help, not only to us in Oklahoma, but just deer hunting across the entire country. Um, they're always a really good shoulder to lean on when you need support or you need, uh, you know, for them to kind of start pumping out some stuff that, that could help your, your specific area. Um, you know, they really help us out when it comes to um, funding for science behind why we should be harvesting more does, um, things like that. So they, they've been a, a, an incredible resource for not only Oklahoma, but all deer hunters. What can you, what can you tell us about, um, the expansiveness of the whitetail herd across the state. It seems like you have pretty good opportunity to harvest mature deer. It seems like in pretty much any area in the state. Yeah. I mean, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, kind of the powerhouse area of, of the state was really the kind of the, the Northwest, not necessarily the panhandle, but you know, woods, alfalfa, Woodward counties, um, up, up that way. Um, but man, now, again, it's, it's like the elk deal. I'm not surprised when somebody shows me a, a big deer they killed from anywhere in the state anymore. Um, 
it's really been long enough now uh, from this hunters in the know, let young bucks grow. That's really kind of started to to grab hold of people here in the state. And I mean, the proof's in the pudding, man. Um, letting those deer get to, to be a mature age uh, and keeping that buck to doe ratio at a at a reasonable number has really kind of shown itself to be true. I know we talked about it just a little bit. We used to be a three buck state. We're a two buck state now, which I really like for someone who loves to hunt on public and private. I, I always recommend people do both. Um, what can you tell me about the the push for people wanting to go to a one buck state? I think people are seeing the Kansas model and, and wondering if this is something we could implement too. What's your thoughts? Yeah. On um, you know, from, from my standpoint, um, we do a lot of research on this and, and, a lot of that is is in that survey that we send out after the season. Uh, we randomly select almost ten thousand people every year to to kind of get a an idea of of the the temperature of the bathwater, so to speak, with, with our deer hunters. And right now, it's still a majority of people um, they want to to harvest two bucks. And yeah. if our resource can handle that, which it can, um, there's no need to to change it. And the beautiful thing about uh, a two buck limit is if you want to have a one buck limit, have a one buck limit. If you want to have a no buck limit, have a no buck limit. Um, you know, it is up to you as far as how you manage your piece of property. And more importantly, it, it's up to you to reach out to your neighbors to make sure that you're all on the same page as far as, hey, this is what I'm doing over here. I would love to have a chat with you and see if we can all kind of be on the same page as far as how we're managing our deer herd. I talked to Nick Penizotto. He's the, uh, He's the CEO of NDA. Mm -hmm. And one thing we kind of discussed in depth was, you know, each individual has to create their own management plan for their particular property. Just because exactly. the state has a two buck limit or a one buck limit, if you are hunting 40 acres that three other people are hunting, each mm -hmm. of you probably shouldn't take two bucks. Each of you probably shouldn't shoot one buck. If, exactly. If you're talking about that many people on a small, small piece of ground. And, and that, that's another thing you've got to take into consideration is, um, you know, there's not a silver bullet for any of this wildlife management. Um, when you look at Kansas and what they're able to produce, when you look at the grand scheme of things, we're really not all that far behind them. Um, when you start looking at book entry deer, um, another thing you've got to consider is that the ground in Kansas is not the ground in Oklahoma. Um, Kansas's soils are incredibly, incredibly productive compared to our soils here in our state. Now, do parts of Oklahoma have soils that are equivalent to Kansas? Absolutely. Um, but when you look at it from a grand scheme of things, uh, go try to grow corn in McCurtain County and tell me how that goes. Um, there's just not the the capability to produce deer like that all across the state. And taking a, a, a buck limit from two to one isn't going to fix that. Um, another thing that we gained from that, uh, that survey, only 7% of our hunters are harvesting two bucks to begin with. So it's really not a, not an, an issue when it comes to growing mature deer. No, that makes sense. I mean, does, does population density have to do with that too? I mean, I think Kansas is a less popular, populous state. Um, there's not nearly, I don't even, there's one major city in the entire state. Most of it's just yeah. small town with farm ground. I mean, exactly. what does that play into it too? I mean, it's just going to be more available habitat. 
um, the more metropolitan areas you have is, is less areas that, that deer can really truly survive and, and grow. However, uh, you know, the seek one guys have been kind of proving us wrong on that, uh, that, uh, you know, scheme there, but, uh, it's just a it's it's apples and oranges really so to take your state and want to do what other states are doing just because they've been successful in growing big deer is is really a moot point um you just it, it's comparing apples and oranges is the best way that i can really put it i like what you said about collaborating with neighbors and developing your own management plan i feel like that's a better long-term strategy than than legislation and trying to change this based on people's opinions exactly and i mean that that's a, a difficult part for oklahoma with the average land holdings being so small um you know most most i want to say the average land holding in oklahoma is like 30 acres so i mean it, it's a pretty small checkerboard kind of, of landscape out there and you're really not able to manage a deer uh, kind of on that that home range capability unless you're managing over a thousand acres um so you know collaborating with neighbors is going to be a, a key point to really doing whatever your goals are um and it, it doesn't matter what your goals are as long as you're on the same page with everybody else uh that that'll help you achieve your goals and you know one thing that i i see a lot is people people want results now um they want to plant a food plot now and they want to shoot a 150 in the fall and that's just not how this game works um you've really got to think about this is this is a long game um you're you're making an investment in something that's going to return itself in in five six seven years so all of the private landowners that i get to work with uh, in our deer management programs um i always tell them you know the day that we start our deer management program we are managing for the fawns that are born right now you know we are managing for that age class of deer um that class of 2022 so in 2027 we're starting to see man what we've been doing is working because i've got a ton of five and a half year old bucks that are awesome awesome deer um whereas most people are like okay well man you know uh you made this recommendation and, and we met that recommendation and we planted some turnip food plots and, and all this stuff and we didn't shoot a 150 this year what's going on it, it's a hard thing to get into people's heads so that's just something that that we kind of battle with on a daily basis but it's uh it's part of it i suppose yeah we've i've noticed i grew up in northeast oklahoma and you talk about the average acreage being 30 that sounds about right i was gonna say 40 yeah. um and i've i've actually for the last few years got to have a lease in southwest oklahoma and kind of see their land um down there because a lot of, a lot in part because of the mountains it's not as sectioned off like you can go almost one or two miles without running into a road section like or and there's more dead end roads and that sort of things yeah. and i think that's a challenge for a lot of people in the state that have those smaller pieces and it's like you're not going to have his bedding where he waters where he food where he eats you're not going to have all those on one place so if you can yeah. collaborate with those people that do have all those factors maybe you can start to manage it a little bit better exactly i mean it, it's a, a one band one sound kind of approach that everybody's got to be be on the same page to to achieve goals man what can you tell me about um about the the season dates here what drives um us setting seasons for say something like like deer like why is for instance the deer season in oklahoma uh the rifle season seems to be almost in the peak rut maybe a little bit after the peak rut whereas you see other 
other states, some of those are a little bit back, a little bit deeper in the season, or maybe in December. What what drives those sort of changes? Yeah. So so again, you've got a combination of scientific data, and you've got uh, you know some of those social traditions that that go on. Um, we do something that we call our, our herd health evaluation every year. So in February, um, we actually go and sample um, antlerless deer. And with that fetus that they're carrying at that point in time, we can actually backdate, we can measure that fetus and backdate it to when that doe was bred. And that is giving us peak rut data. And all the data that we have from that, thousands of points of, of data, um, point to our peak rut being from November 8th to November 14th. So that's those two weeks that are right there between the end of muzzleloader and the start of rifle. So one thing that's kind of difficult to get across to some folks is what I'm calling the rut as a biologist and what hunters call the rut are two totally different things. So, you know, for most of our hunters and I'm a deer hunter myself. So I say, yeah, I'm hunting the rut because I'm seeing bucks chasing. I'm seeing scrapes, fighting, all that fun stuff. But I got to put my biologist hat on and say, okay, the rut is actual breeding activity. Like when are we actually getting down, get, getting down to it, you know? Um, so that's kind of why we are, we can feel good about setting those season dates where they are is because we have that data. What we didn't get there is... What's the peak rut date from a biological perspective versus yeah. a, a hunting perspective? So, you know, from from a, a biological perspective, that peak rut is November 8th to the 14th. That's when a bulk of our does are getting bred. Um, now, when, when we're talking about rutting activity from a hunter standpoint, um, that's when it kind of gets into personal opinions. So, I mean, do you consider seeing your first scrape line to be the beginning of rut activity or are we talking about seeing consistent daytime buck activity um consistent deer every time you see a doe you see a buck with with her um you know chasing tending all these these words that you see in an outdoor life magazine when they write about it is that what we're talking about um so, you know, that's why we get to set or feel good about setting those season dates when they are is because we know that most of our does are bred before rifle season starts. Um, and, you know, the, the social aspect that comes into that is it's been a longstanding tradition for the weekend of Thanksgiving to have deer hunting. Um, I know tons of people who, instead of carving turkeys on Thanksgiving Day, they are at deer camp with their entire family. Um, so there are things that you've got to take into consideration there that, that again, I mean, the, the population can handle it. The resource can handle the hunting when we're putting it on and, and how hard or how efficient the method is that that's currently going on. Um, the resource can handle it. So if it, if it comes with, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, um, being the make or break on, on when a season date is, I, I think that we're, we're pretty safe on when it's at. I wonder if like hunter satisfaction is a piece of it. You're talking about tradition and social aspect as well. Like if I'm hunting, if I only get to hunt a week or two a year, let's say people have limited vacation time and they get vacation off towards Thanksgiving. Is that a big aspect of it too? Cause you want people to enjoy it. You want people to buy Absolutely. licenses year after year. Absolutely. Um, I mean that that's something that you've really got to take into consideration when you're doing these things is, is, 
am I providing the most opportunity that I can to as many people as I can with with what we have come to to love and know and, and make a part of our life pretty much every day? Um, is this something that that, you know, the the blue collar guy that, you know, gets a week off a year? they're all taking it during deer rifle season because it's what's important to them and they do want to enjoy that hunting experience. So yeah, it's, it's not, uh, it's not just random dates that we pick and throw out there. I know Oklahoma has a very vast landscape of public acres is that what's the process of acquiring new WMAs. And I've kind of seen some, uh, start to pop up recently. It's a lot of them, it's a little smaller track WMAs, but what kind of drives that? Is it the revenue the department gets and their ability to acquire more land based on the amount of hunters or what, what drives that? I think people are always wondering about new public opportunities. Yeah. So, um, this is not something that I'm just super well-versed in cause there's a lot of rabbit holes that, that, and hoops that we have to jump through to, to obtain a piece of property. Um, as far as funding for that property, um, that's all through license sales. I mean, that, that uh, lifetime license fund um, directly goes towards purchasing public land. So um, there are, you know, there's always stuff that pops up. I mean, and we have people calling all the time saying, Hey man, I'm, I'm trying to sell my 80 acres, you know, would love to have you come look at it. And, Unless it is adjoining an, an already existing piece of property um, or giving access to something like, uh, for instance, we just closed like a year ago on one that gave access to the Barren Fork Creek for fishing. It's like 320 acres up there. And I want to say probably Cherokee County. Um, we hopped on that because it's like, great, look at what this little piece of land can give access to. Um, but it's really getting to the point where kind of things are starting to shift more into that OLAP territory, um, which is kind of, I mean, can't, we were talking about Kansas earlier. Kansas kind of, uh, they really kicked that snowball down the hill as far as, as what a leasing or walk-in hunting access program should look like. Um, so, you know, they call theirs Weehaw, walk-in hunting access, where we call ours OLAP, Oklahoma Land Access Program. And essentially, that's the department going to private landowners, and we're leasing the hunting rights uh, for those those properties. And it's opened up tens of thousands of acres all across the state that essentially are considered public land for that that season. One little hack that for people that are listening to is I've seen uh, if people can actually drive by and see OLAP signs before they go on a mapping app, say like HuntStand or OnX, it's almost like a private little honey hole till everybody figures it out. Yeah, and you know that that's something that it's awesome because those are updated every year. Um, so you know, that's something that you've got to be careful with, uh, because once it's in OLAP, it doesn't mean it's always going to be something you can hunt. So that map is updated, uh, pretty frequently as far as what's open, what's not. Um, and you know, it's not because it's OLAP, it's not just open to everything. Um, it might only be open, uh, to dove hunting, or it might only be open, uh, for certain dates that would correlate with, uh, pheasant season or you know you, you've got to really be mindful of paying attention to some of those things or you can get caught uh being someplace that you're not supposed to be yeah so definitely consult the regs before you just jump on a piece of olap that is the answer to every question you ask me is consult the regulations yeah we uh i've actually That's been the, headed 
to hunt some places in Southeast and mm-hmm. got a call from my buddy on the way. I go, Hey, it's closed this weekend. And I'm like, what? Yeah. But thankfully we have so much, so much land. It's like, all right, we'll call an audible, go over here. Yeah. We'll go somewhere else. So, I mean, it, it's a, if you haven't gotten to experience, you know, what we offer here in Oklahoma, uh, I would strongly suggest to, to do so. I mean, it's the, the second most ecologically diverse state in the country behind California. So you've got to think about it from that standpoint. It, it doesn't matter what style of hunting you prefer. Um, we can, we can provide for you. So if you're a, a big open plains, let my glass do the walking kind of hunter, we got it. If you want to get in there with a 350 legend into the thickest, nastiest stuff you can find, we got plenty of that too. So it's a, it's a great place to, to live. It's a great place to hunt. It's a great place to work. So I think one of the things I wanted to cover before you go is this is an ever evolving conversation, but some States choose to manage pressure from out of staters differently. Um, mm-hmm. So some, I, I'd say some of the Midwestern States usually tend to do it through a draw style. Like there's no over the counter, Oklahoma being, we talked about it earlier, it's no longer a sleeper state. Everybody knows about it. It being one of these states that is allows you to get multiple buck tags also over the counter. Mm-hmm. How do you manage uh, manage the conversation around that? Because I know there's a lot of people, and I've seen an increased amount of out-of-staters, and I've been an out-of-stater in other states, so I love it when it's, when it's me. But um, how do you guys kind of manage that? Yeah, and I mean, uh, it it's really starting to be understood a little bit more, um, from our, from our side of the fence. Um, you're not the first person to bring that up. You won't be the last person to bring that up. Um, and like you said, it's ever changing. So as we see that develop more, um, will we make changes to, to non-resident hunting regulations? I don't know. Um, you know, that, that's something that, just at the biologist level is kind of over my head. Um, I can make regulation uh, recommendations, but mm-hmm. you know, they've got to go through kind of that vetting process to, to be, uh, be actually taken and, and adopted by our commission. So, um, you know, you would think that the big game biologists would have all kinds of private land access and, and honey holes, but um, I 95% of, of the hunting I do is, is on public land. Uh, just because I love the fact that this is something that I am a part of and that I, you know, and obviously I've got a little bigger slice of the pie because I know the people that manage these places. I know the, the management techniques and who these people are and, and how passionate they are about, about what they're doing on those areas. So I really enjoy it, but I have noticed a, a large increase in non-resident hunters and it's something that, that can't be just overlooked. So it'll be interesting to see what we're going to do. I don't know. I haven't even heard any sort of rumor mill to get started for you, Christian. I mean, there, there's nothing. Not, I mean, again, we're, we're, we've got to look at it and take everything from a data-driven perspective. So it's probably time to start digging into some of that stuff. Yeah, has your um, I'm real, I've I've kind of fallen in love with the public land thing in the last few years. I've shot a buck in 2020 off public. Shot one last year off public. The same a good WMA buck off public. Don't you don't lie Sorry. to these people. Sorry, humble brag. A, a good yeah. one, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've I've fallen in love. With, I love I love and appreciate the work that you guys do. I mean, it's yeah. awesome. Um, and I just wanted to ask you before we go. I know we're running up on time here. Has your job as the big game biologist, has it affected any of your satisfaction as a hunter? Has it driven you forward where you love it even more now since you're working so closely with it or do you like it less? 
so coming into this position, um, I was a duck hunter and I loved managing whitetail deer. Um, that's kind of what I grew up working on, you know, different, I've worked for various outfitters. Um, it's what I love to do as far as my time off season time. Like I love, you know, the timber stand improvement projects. I love controlled burning, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I was really a duck hunter uh, until I really started working with this job. And I kind of took it upon myself of like, man, if I'm really going to relate to my deer hunters that, that I'm managing this resource across this vast landscape, I need to get into this. So, I mean, four or five years ago, um, I really started hitting it hard and it's something that I've fallen in love with as well. And yeah, I mean, I think you, you do gain a greater appreciation for any game species when you really start chasing them around a little bit. And, you know, the places that we have to do it um, are incredible. I mean, like I said, the white-tailed deer is found in all 77 of our counties. So you get uh, anything that you can possibly think of as far as habitat types to kill a deer in. Um, I'm sure we've got a sliver of it somewhere, some way. And luckily, um, for the most part, our WMAs are spread pretty well across the state. Um, the southeast portion, um, obviously, with the National Forest Service, has got a whole heck of a lot of ground over there um so the areas are vast and i mean you're never going to overhunt 400,000 acres of warehouser ground so it's a it's a pretty cool opportunity to to have and and man i appreciate uh, appreciate getting to talk to you about it today yeah absolutely i mean last thing i'd say is if you're going to hunt southeast just bring a good pair of boots if uh you better have a really good pair of boots man um you know we talked about doing that bear research that that uh like mccurton county was humbling on my legs to say the least <laughs> so for people that are listening to the podcast and they want to connect with you or uh be friends with you on any social media where can they find you and where can they connect with the odwc to kind of uh, get some more of this research that you guys put out yeah so you can find our website it's wildlifedepartment.com um, I don't know how we got that website domain, but somehow we got it. So if you're interested, yeah, wildlifedepartment.com is where you can find all of our information on hunting and fishing, all of our area regulations, things like that. If you have any questions for me, uh, you can always shoot me an email uh, at dallas.barber at odwc.ok.gov. Um, anything that you guys need as far as deer, deer management, big game species questions. If you just want to call and chat like Christian, man, holler and uh, I'll do the best I can to answer any questions that you have. Cool. Well, Dallas, I'll let you know when this episode is produced and ready to go. And uh, I appreciate you jumping on again. This was this was fun. Absolutely, dude. If you ever needed uh, anything else, just give me a holler. Good luck this fall. Yeah, sounds good. Appreciate it, man. Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode.